Good morning. Well, there were like two and a half people here when Fudd introduced me, so let me just introduce myself just so you know who I am. Uh, my name's Ryan, and I'm from Charlotte, which is a city in North Carolina, if you haven't heard of it. And um, I've been there for two years. I'm uh, a student pastor, and I do some other things at my church, this church called Church at Charlotte, which is, if you know where South Park Mall is, it's just like five minutes south of the mall. So it's, uh, it's been an awesome, awesome place for me to be. I'm from Michigan. I'll never move back unless one of God's angels wakes me up in the middle of the night with a flaming sword at my throat and says, you're moving back to Michigan. Because Michigan is cold and gray. And if you've ever been there, I mean, when I first got married, my wife said, she was, from, she was a missionary kid who grew up in Asia, and she said, I think this is what hell is like. So, um, you know, I'm not going back there, and I'm, not, I'm certainly not going to take her. Um, if you get confused, because I know I kind of look like Fudd, right? I'm about the same height, and we're both kind of thinner people. Um, I don't work out as much as Fudd does. But um, if just, just look at my face and notice that there's hair that grows here, okay? So Fudd... <laughs> Fudd has a little, I don't know if you've noticed his little uh, thing. I don't know technically how you classify that. There's got to be a book with like coffee table book at like Urban Outfitters with facial hair guides in it. And we'll just call it the Fudd, which is like there's like 17 hairs that line the chin. <laughs> okay. He shaved on Tuesday and it's really growing in of like four weeks ago, four Tuesdays ago. So <laughs> um, yeah, and I've known Fudd for a long time. So I can say that and we've been through all kinds of stuff together. And, uh, and uh, so we've been friends for a long time, and, and so I can make fun of him, and it's okay. Uh, and that was great. I didn't do that last service. I totally should have. Um, we are, at my church, we have been journeying all year long at like 20,000 feet through the Old Testament in a series called His Story, Our Story. And so we started at Genesis at the beginning, and we're working our way through the Old Testament. And, um, and so... Last week, I preached in the book of Hosea, and I'd like to go there with you today. But Hosea is pretty far into the story of God's people in the Old Testament. Um, Hosea is a guy who prophesied about 750 to about 725 years or so before Jesus, around the same time as Amos and Isaiah. Um, And he prophesied in Israel. And at this point in the story of God's people, there are two kingdoms. There's Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And Hosea is in Israel, and Israel is not a good place right here in the story. And just wanted to give you some background. Hosea is an interesting guy because not only in his um, ministry, what he would say, but in the actual marriage that God called him to. God said, Hosea, I'm going to call you to a marriage that will be a picture to everybody who looks at it of who I am and what my relationship with my people is like. And it's going to show everybody what my heart is like for my people in spite of who they are. And it's an amazing book. I want to give you permission to be a little bit intimidated by this book. Because, you know, Fudd said it at the beginning, but he said, I'll give you 10 minutes to find it. Because I bet if if you spent any time in in, in the Bible this week reading, meditating, in in quiet time or devotional time or whatever you call it, um, Jesus' time, you probably weren't in the Minor Prophets. It's not probably the place you run to when you're like, oh man, I just need to go back to that favorite thing in Obadiah and just check it out. And that, 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 you know, that whole book I memorized when I memorized Joel and the locusts and all that stuff. You probably, if we're honest, the Minor Prophets, 
there's 12 of them, are kind of intimidating. I mean, sometimes we wonder, can I even say and enunciate their name correctly? You know, and so, you know, someone asks you, and you're like, well, what, where is it? Well, it's in Haggai. Oh, really? I thought it was Haggai, or it's Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, or how do you say, how do you say these books, right? And so when we can't even say the name, how do we even then jump into the message? And then we look at some of their messages, and we're like, I don't understand this. I mean, I would venture to say, I haven't done any empirical study or research on this, most of the church doesn't spend a ton of time in the prophets in general. Like, we'll pull them out Christmas time. We'll be like, oh, look, it's all about Jesus. And we'll go to like Isaiah, for unto us the child is given and the government shall rest on his shoulders. And we're like, that's beautiful. I love the prophets. And then the rest of you were like, eh, I'm not going there. I don't understand it. And what, what are you trying to say? But 12 minor prophets. And um, the minor prophets in the Hebrew mind weren't 12 individual books. They were known as the book of the Twelve. And they gave this panoramic picture of what God was going to do in the future and of what God was going to do in that day as he related to his people. And so they read them as one book, the book of the Twelve. And Hosea is a part of the book of the Twelve, and it's a slice of, of the picture of what God's going to do in the future and God's promise of hope and restoration for his people and also of the amazing character and heart of God for every single person back then, and as we apply methods of interpretation to us today, it's the church. And I love it. I, um, we're going to look at Hosea 1 through 3. That's why we didn't read it all on the front end. I know you normally read the text on the front end, but that would, that would have been like, well, I mean, I know, let me just say this too. I'm only going to preach for like 40 minutes today. So it's like, you're welcome, okay? All right, it's just one, just want to just want to say that no no you don't need to thank me you're welcome okay because um, I know Fudd sometimes goes for like three or four hours and um, he really gets into it so so yeah Hosea now some of you I, I met a couple uh, who just got married two weeks ago so I know some of you you know and, and, and in general I look around the room it's pretty young pretty young crowd some of you may be married some of you may not be married yet. But you know this day is coming or has already come in your life. It's a good day. It's the day that you get to do your your gift registry for your wedding. So hopefully it's a good day for you. Maybe it's not a good day. Maybe it turns into a fight. But hopefully it's a good day. And, you know, it's the day and you go to like Pottery Barn or Bed Bath & Beyond. uh, You know, or if you're really, really progressive and hip, you go to Crate & Barrel and um, you fill out your registry. Now, I've been married for 10 years. So I am an old, seasoned man, okay? I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm, I really have been married for 10 years, but I'm really not that old. But when I did it, back in my day, okay, they gave you this little, uh, those little checkout guns, and you go around, and you just get to zap everything that you want, and you put the quantity in. And here's what the day can be summed up by, this word for me, is expectations. Because you're not just buying, you know, you're registering for that. You're not buying anything. That's the great thing about it. You're not just registering for those plates, right? You're registering for those plates that you'll eat, you know, romantic dinners on with each other, you know, in front of the TV. You know what I'm saying? And um, <laughs> you're not just registering for sheets or getting into arguments as to whether a man can sleep on sheets with flowers on them. I didn't ever have that conversation, but I may have. And, you know, it's like, can we do this or not? And we had this, like, I, I think we had a 15-minute conversation in Bed Bath & Beyond about it. 
And I was finally convinced and told, yes, we can do this. And I said, yeah, you're right. I agree. And I just learned a quick lesson about being a husband. By the way, my wife can't be here this morning. She's singing at our church. Um, but she's really cool. And she, she's a personal trainer. And she does CrossFit. And she can do 15 pull-ups at one time. Okay? It took me 15 minutes just to roll out of my bed this morning and get moving. And she can do like 15 pull-ups. And so sometimes we flex in front of the mirror and um, it just breaks. I mean, it's amazing. And um, so, you know, she's really cool. Her name is Liz. We have a little girl, Mim, downstairs. Uh, so if you hang around after service, you can meet Mim, and she won't make eye contact with you. So there you go. I'm a good parent. Um, but, but expectations. And then you carry these expectations into marriage, right? And it may be six days. It may be six weeks. It may be 16 years. But at some point in the journey of marriage, you realize... Not everything in my life is going to turn out the way that I thought it was going to turn out. Not everything is going to go the way I thought it was going to go. But it's good to be able to have those expectations because a lot of them do turn out in some way, shape, or form in the neighborhood of how you thought they were going to turn out. Now, imagine you're Hosea. You're a prophet in Israel, okay? And Israel is not in a good place. And you know, like, Hosea is not the last prophet, but he's not the first one either. And he knows that what God is calling him to in his life and in his ministry is, it's not like everyone's going to be like, Hosea, hey, um, we love that message. Come on over. We, we're going to have fellowship afterwards, and we're going to have, you know, fried, um, fried unleavened bread cakes, okay? And you come over, and we're going to hang out, and we're going to, we're just, we love you, Hosea. You're the best. You're the best, Hosea. You're the best. We love you, and you're so cool, and you're so great, and we don't care that you can't grow facial hair. It doesn't matter. We, we love you. You know what I mean? It's not like you guys with FUD, right? You love FUD, but not everyone, like, was loving Hosea, and he knew that was going to happen, so surely, if God calls you to be a prophet, in your mind and in your heart of hearts, you would have expectations to hope for that one person. That one person who would be your confidant. Who you could come home to at the end of a hard day when people had rejected you. And who'd have your back no matter what. When everyone else was kind of kicking you to the curb and kind of done with you, they would be there for you. That person to journey through life with. But but imagine you're Hosea and you don't even get the chance to have expectations. You don't even get the, the chance to, to think about what it's going to be like with this one person knowing that you have a hard life ahead of you. Imagine all those expectations are blown out of the water from the start, shot to pieces right at the beginning, and this instead is what you can expect. Jump into the text with me. If you have one of the Bible's that Remedies provided for you. It's on page 487. And we're going to look at chapter 1, verse 2. And just the first half. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom. Not a word you probably use this week, right? Whoredom. And have children of whoredom. Now, I went to seminary. I went to Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. It was a great experience for, in a lot of ways. Um, and we had, um, we, we had some single ladies, all the single ladies and all the single men in seminary. And, you know, and I went to a Christian school. And so, you know, we were all kind of like, you know, just, just couldn't wait to get married. I mean, we, I would have gotten married at like 19 and a half if someone would have been the right person and been there. I was ready. I was excited. And if you've been to a Christian school, you know that environment. 
And so I was at Southern Seminary and at the school I was at, and, you know, occasionally you come across these people and they would have lists, like, you know, there were like 9,000 things, that, and they had written it out that they were looking for in a, in a future spouse. You ever met somebody like this, or maybe that's you, and you're like, yeah, actually, I've got it in my wallet. How does he know? Okay, and so, you know, it's like everything you want, and a lot of it's really good, but I don't think anybody had on their list um, wife of whoredom, right, or husband of whoredom. Who do, what do you, who do you want to marry? I want to marry a whore. That'd be awesome, you know? You know what I'm saying? Or children of whoredom. Well, what kind of kids do you want? Well, I'm hoping my spouse goes out and has an affair and then comes back and that's my baby boy, you know? Who, who, he kind of looks like you. No, he doesn't because actually my wife's a whore, okay? I mean, nobody's got that on their list of things that they're looking for. Hosea, I don't think, had that on his list. And we don't get to see the, the, the conversation that transpires between God and Hosea. But there was probably some kind of like, what? And God was like, uh-huh. And Hosea was like, okay, whatever, you know? But Hosea did it. He was obedient. And there was a, a for or a because. And he understood the reason why God was calling him to it. Look at the second half of verse 2. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. And at this point, my heart drops. And I feel sick to my stomach. And as I've read this text probably 30 to 100 times, somewhere in that range, right, in the last couple weeks, I just think to myself, how does it ever get so bad in God's relationship with his people that he would call one of his prophets, this guy who's devoted to him. See, prophets take God's law, his covenant, all of his promises of who he is and what he's going to do and who he's called his people to be, his unique, special people. And they... They enforce it and they say, look, you're, you're not living justly. You're not loving people. And, and they call people back to return to God, to rend their hearts, not just their garments, and return to God. How does it get so bad that God calls Hosea, this guy who loves him, and he says, Hosea, go marry a woman who's promiscuous, whose bed, this isn't like a symbolic spiritual adultery. She's not lukewarm in her faith and kind of like yeah, you know, I haven't really read my Bible and like the scroll in like, you know, a couple of weeks and I just don't really feel it. Now this lady was a, was a woman whose bed was full of men, right? She's, her bed's full of these dudes. And God says, Hosea, you're going to marry this woman. And Hosea goes and finds this woman knowing not just who she was, but the kind of person that she is. Knowing what's coming, because in pro- and there's a promise in chapter 2, you're going to have children of unfaithfulness, Hosea. And so in verse 3, he went and took Gomer. Gomer. Which, you know, we are living in a day where as parents, you know, it's kind of trending for our generation of, of people that we're trying to choose like original, unique, kind of, unused names like they're biblical names a lot of times or you know kind of unique names and so we got all kinds of names for our kids we, we call our daughter her name's Miriam we call her Mim I mean not many not many Mims that you've ever met right it's kind of cool it's like my, our generation of parents are doing that but I went on babyplanningcenter.com Gomer's not doing very well okay nobody's like has a little baby girl and they're like I know what it is Gomer Right? I mean, how do you explain that to your daughter when she's three? I mean, my daughter just came to me last week. She's four. And she said, how did you choose my name? I mean, what, she, can you imagine a little, little three-year-old girl coming to you looking? Hey, hey, um, hey, daddy, why'd you choose my name? What, who, who was I in the Bible? 
a whore. You know, you're just not going to say it to your kid. And right from the start, we don't really like this lady. She's not our favorite. She's not real popular. We're not going for her. We're not saying be like Gomer. Just be like Gomer. And it only gets worse as we go through the text. They have three kids that the text mentions in verse 1. First, they have Jezreel. And Jezreel is their son. He's a boy. And Jezreel, all the names are symbolic. Jezreel is symbolic of the fact that God is going to bring judgment on Jehu's line. Jehu is a king. And at the beginning of Jehu's reign, in a place called Jezreel, there was bloodshed. And they put these leaders who had led Israel and God's people into idolatry to death. And God said, now that this is happening, it's kind of come full circle. You're leading my people into spiritual adultery, and you're going to have judgment. And later on in the Old Testament, there's judgment on Jehu's line. The next daughter, the the next child's a daughter, and the children two and three in the text, as far as we can tell, are not Hosea's biological kids. The way that it sets itself up, this first one is his, but the next two, we, we don't think they are. I mean, there's some debate about it, but most people generally would say, yeah, we're pretty sure these aren't Hosea's kids. And so first you have lo ruhama, which means no mercy or not loved. And then you have little lo ami, this little boy, which means not my people. And God is saying all this to say through this man, through his life, through this marriage, through this family. This is exactly what it's like between me and Israel. I mean, Gomer's his wife, but she is anything but the part, right? She's not his wife. She doesn't live like his wife. She doesn't act like his wife. She doesn't relate to him like his wife. She goes out, has an affair with different men or another man, and has two other kids that then live in Hosea's house. This is not a family. It's not what a family's supposed to be. And this is exactly what's going on with God and Israel. I mean, Israel is so far into worshiping a little teeny tiny idol named Baal at this point that they don't even, they don't even remember God's name. They are using, it says in chapter 2, the name Yahweh and the name Baal interchangeably. Like they're the same thing. And Baal is the Canaanite god of fertility. Something that the people are bowing down to. And it's not just going to give them children, or, you know, you know, but it's going to make their crops grow. Baal is the one who produces. And in an economy that's agricultural, crops, grain, wine, um, you know, the grapes that grow for the wine, all of that is when they grow, when it rains, when things are harvested, it means financial prosperity. And Israel is like, well, Baal is providing for us. And they're they're doing everything they can to get this little statue's attention. Baal, just please make it rain. Baal, thank you for everything you've given to us. Baal or Yahweh or who are you again? I don't really remember. And God says, Israel, you're my people. I'm your God. I'm, I'm like a husband to you. And you're like an adulterous wife who goes out and prostitutes herself to an idol. It seems like you read through the first nine verses of chapter one. We know this book's longer than that because we can see chapter 2 right here on the same page, it seems like we should just close the book and be done. I mean, where's the hope for Israel? It seems like it should be over for Israel. It seems like God should just be like, well, forget this, and they should get what they deserve, which is judgment. That's what they've earned. 
That's the way they're living, right? That's what they're doing. But instead, there's a conjunctive key word. And in the Bible, what's amazing is whenever it seems like it should be over for people, whenever it seems like hope should be gone, whenever it seems like the light is so dim that you're like, I can't even see anymore what could be or what will be in the future. There's always this like conjunctive keyword, these little words that we skip over, we don't really think much of. I mean, they're important to us in language and we, we use them when we write to make transitions. But there's the therefores and the buts and the neverthelesses. And in chapter 1, verse 10, the word is yet. And look at what God says as he sprinkles hope over his people. He says, yet the number of the children of Israel, he's just gotten through calling lo me, not my people. And he says, because you're not my people and I'm not your God. He says, yet the number of the children of Israel is sprinkling hope shall be like the sand on the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you're not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. He's going all the way back in the story to Genesis 12, when God made a promise to a man named Abram, who we call Abraham kind of change his name. That happens sometimes, right? Sarah, Sarai, Sarah. You know, that, that was their family. And one day, Abram was outside, and he and his wife didn't know how they were going to have a child. And God came and made a provident promise and a, and, a, and a covenant, an agreement with, with this guy. And he said, hey, look at the stars. You see the stars? Yeah. Well, there's going to be a people that comes through you. I know it seems like it's hopeless, but someday a people's going to come from your line that, more numerous than the stars in the sky. You know the sand that's on the, the sea? You, anybody been to the beach this summer? Probably, right? And, and you know all the sand, right? The, the people that come from your line are going to be more numerous than the sand on the sea. And through you, all the peoples, all the nations, all the people groups, every single person on planet Earth is going to be blessed. And in chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, it's like, well, where is the, how is that ever going to come to f- fulfillment? That promise cannot happen. And God says, wait. Hold on. Stop. Pause. I am the faithful one here. I made promises and I'm going to do it. Do you think I'm not able? You think I can't do it? Even though it's hopeless for Israel, hey, who's God? Who's faithful? Who makes a promise that he always fulfills? If I say something, people, you can take it to the bank. And I'm going to give you hope when it seems like you shouldn't have hope. Now, I, I don't live in Rock Hill, right? I live in Charlotte. And I'm pretty sure it's the same in Rock Hill as in Charlotte. Because in Charlotte, we, we, don't, we don't have any like altars in our homes to little statue, with little statues on them to bail. You probably don't have anything like that, right? I'm just guessing. I've seen the evening news here one time. It was the 30 most interesting minutes of television I've had. I'm not even kidding you. If anybody wa- hasn't watched it, you need to watch, you need to watch the Rock Hill evening news. It's amazing the things that you discover that people do. And um, so I was watching the evening news here one time, but I'm pretty sure that there's no bail worship going on in Rock Hill. But wouldn't you agree, maybe you're not there today, but maybe you've been there, or you're going to be there at some point in your life, that all of us give our lives to things that are a whole lot less than God. 
And we do everything we can to get their attention. And we give them credit for things that they shouldn't get credit for. And in moments of weakness, we look to them for satisfaction, for fulfillment, for, for, for some sense of completion to who we are, for some sense of our identity that only God should get. I mean, we're, we're not here, you know, on our knees to Baal, saying, Baal, here's a raisin cake. Would you please make, you know, my organic uh, tomatoes grow in the backyard this year. And then I will give you credit for being all that you are, Baal, or Jesus, or whatever your name is. But don't all of us give our lives to little G gods, things that are a whole lot less than God, and give things value and worth in our lives? And that could even be your spouse, it could be your kids, it could be your job, it could be a lot of things. It could be some pleasure. It could be something you turn to in your weakness, to numb pain. It could be a drink. It could be a drug. I mean, haven't we all been there? And if we're saying, no, I haven't, then I'm just going to say, you're a liar. <laughs> That's nice, right, to come to church and be told that. But haven't we all been there? And it's different for all of us. But... We've all been there just like Israel. And haven't you ever felt like in that, oh my gosh, I'm falling apart here. Haven't you ever felt like in that moment that the story of your relationship with God should just be closed? And that your name should be not loved? And that your name should be not my people? And that it should be over with you and God? Right? You're condemned. You're not worth anything. You're not usable for, for God's service. God doesn't, couldn't possibly love someone like me or use someone like me or work in someone like who does the things that I do and, and thinks the things that I am. Someone like me, they, God couldn't work in my life. And where's the hope of chapter 1, verses 10 and 11 and chapter 2, verse 1? I want to skip and kind of just breeze through 2, 1 through 13 and jump and, and double click on chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. So if you could turn there, it's on the next page. And um, chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 are unbelievable, but the whole section from verse 14 to verse 23 is amazing. And it's God singing this love song to Israel. Now we already know what Israel is, who they are and what they're like. That's, it's been clearly portrayed for all of us. And God just busts out this love song for Israel in the midst of their sin, in the midst of their adultery, in the midst of their, their it, it feeling to us as the reader like there should be no love song. There should be no hope. God, you just, just, just close the book and stop writing the story. But God says this. He says, therefore, behold, I will allure her, talking about Israel, and I'll bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her, and there I will give her vineyards. Okay, so God's already said in chapter 2, at the beginning part of it, I'm going to take away her vineyards. You're telling me that, you're telling everyone that Baal is giving you the wine. Baal is giving you the grain. I'm going to, I'm going to dry up all your crops. I'm going to end it, and I'm going to show you who is providing in this whole scenario. But God says, after that, after the discipline, I'm going to give you back your vineyards, and I'm going to make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she, she shall answer me as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. 
unbelievable. God says, my people, it should be over for us, but I'm going to take her and walk and speak tenderly to her. And he says this little phrase there, and, and you probably, if you're like me, when you read the Bible, sometimes you skip over phrases if you don't know what they mean. But he says, I'll make the Valley of Achor a door of hope. And to me, it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever read in the Old Testament. And and normally, if I wasn't maybe preaching this message or preparing for it, I would read a phrase like that and I'd be like, "Ah, I don't really know or understand or want to think about what that means or do the work to do it. So I'll make the Valley of Achor a door of hope. Oh, that's nice. And the next verse. You know what I mean? And then we just kind of, if you're anything like me or like the normal person who reads their Bible, a lot of times what we do with Scripture is we just are so intimidated by it that we let that be kind of create this, this valley between us and our understanding of Scripture. Um, and let me tell you something. There are phrases all over the Bible like this that are allusions to things God's already done or said or something that's already happened. And here's how you understand the Bible better. You ready? You read it. If you're, if you're, if you're like my mother... <laughs> She says this to me all the time. She says, Ryan, um, I, I, I just can't, I just, I just love that you preach and you do what you do and you went to seminary because you help me to understand the Bible. And I'm like, that's good. And that's why God's given us pastors and teachers and all those people in our lives. However, God has given us his word. That's why four or 500 years ago, people died so that we could read it. Because it's God's word and you don't need a commentary now that can help you. You don't have to have the best study Bible, though the ESV study Bible is like the best study Bible ever. If you don't have it, you should go buy it like today, right now, after church, order it on Amazon or go, you know, the Christian bookstore is probably closed, but, you know, just find a way to get it because it will help you. But the way that you understand the Bible, and this is a rabbit trail for just a second, but I just feel like it needs to be said, is just by reading and reading and reading and reading and reading and reading and getting so acquainted with the story that it becomes a part of who you are. Most people watch about six hours of TV a day. And most people, um, if they read the Bible for 15 to 20 minutes a day, could read it two times in a year. And our problem is not that we can't do it. Our problem is that we don't do it. And you don't have to read everything in the ESV. If you want to read some of the narratives in another translation that's, that, that is a little bit easier, I mean, if you want to spend some time in the Jesus Storybook Bible, I don't care. It's awesome. But spend time knowing God's word. Because then phrases like the valley of Achor being a door of hope, you're like, whoa, that's awesome. And here's where I want to pause. And I want to go frame by frame and say, what does that verse mean? The valley of Achor is a door of hope. And here's what I want to say, is that in this whole scenario, when, when we find ourselves in a place where we feel like the story should be closed, where all we deserve is judgment, Hosea is saying, the valley is a door. Now, the valley of Achor really literally meant in the Hebrew mind, the valley of trouble. Achor means trouble. And God's saying, I'm going to take the place that should be reserved for trouble, and I'm going to offer you a door of hope. I'm going to take the place that we should close the story, it should be over, and all you should get is is a big old, you know, cement truck dumped on you of judgment that would bury you and then dry up and leave you in the ground and I'm going to offer you a door of hope. And I love the image of a door because a door is something we walk into that's a a whole new way of living, a whole new way of thinking. It's a whole new dimension of what we're to experience and what God wants for us to experience. 
And God says, I'm going to take the valley of trouble and make it a door of hope. Now, in Joshua chapter 7, there was this dude named Achan. And Achan stole some stuff that belonged only to God. And he took it, and he put it at the bottom of his tent. And he hid it there, and he kind of sat on it and slept on it, and probably thought about it a lot. And he thought, this is what I'm pinning my hopes on. This stuff someday is going to pay out for me. And Achan got found out. And they said, Achan, we know what you did. And Achan said, yeah, I did that. I did, I did it. And they took Achan, and they took his family, and they took all of his stuff into this place, the Valley of Achor. And Achan got what he deserved. They picked up rocks, and they crushed Achan, and they crushed his family. And the story for Achan was over. Judgment. And it says kind of a harrowing line at the end of Joshua chapter 7. It says, and from that day forward, that place was called the Valley of Trouble. And so if you're tracking through the story of Hosea and you're reading what he says and you're hearing what he says and you just think this is it for us. I mean, Israel is in a terrible place. We've given our our hearts to other other gods, to lesser gods. This should be over for us. And God says, no, I'm going to take the valley of what should be the valley of trouble and I'm going to give you a door of hope. And I mean, it was Christmas time for me. And Christmas Day is just a picture. It's, it's the tip of the iceberg and what's under the surface, um, you know, you know the, the metaphor is like when you see an iceberg, there's a little bit on top, but then underneath there's this just massive ice that you don't see floating there, keeping the little bit above the water. And this picture is just a little bit above the water in my life of what was really going on beneath the surface. And I'm just going to be the first one to admit, pastors aren't perfect people. We don't have it all together. I know you'd like to think that about us, that, you know, we go to bed reciting the Old Testament to our wives, and, you know, we, uh, we, 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 our kids never disobey, and they're just always perfect little angels, and, um, you know, just everything about us, we have it all together. But, but we don't. We're we're, we're, we're people who are in the process of being transformed, just like you. We're, we're the same. We just have a different role in the church. And it was Christmas Day, and so many things in my life felt like they were spiraling out of control. And I couldn't fix people, and I couldn't fix situations, and I couldn't fix what was going on at work, and I couldn't fix a lot of things, and I just felt like, oh my goodness, God, I can't do this anymore. I was exhausted frazzled. And, and there was a lot going on in my life and in my marriage and in a lot of places. And so my parents were in town. And so it's always wonderful to have guests in from out of town. Those of you who, who entertain guests for more than like three days know how much fun that is. That's just awesome. And, you know, there's nothing better. And, um, and, 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 then, and then it's even worse when you feel like everything's falling apart in your life, Right? So, you know, think about you college students, how your parents must feel when you come home. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just saying. The truth hurts, okay? Um, <laughs> but my, my parents are in town, and so that just makes it all kinds of, you know, there's like layer upon layer. It's like a five-layer, one of those disgusting dips that people put refried beans in the middle of. That's my life, and it's just gross. And um, we go to see a movie. There's this little shopping center called Stonecrest in Charlotte. And it's funny, there's a Target, this is just weird, but there's a Target here, and then there's like, like maybe four houses down, there's another Target. I mean, that's what it feels like. It's like Target, and then there's another Target, like another 
two miles away. So Target is taking over, you know, this part of South Charlotte. And, and at Stonecrest, there's a movie theater, and we went to see Wreck-It Ralph. Because me, Dad, thought, hey, it'll be a fun family tradition. We'll start going to see a movie together. That'll be great, won't it? And so we go to see Wreck-It Ralph, and the fight starts. As soon as we get out of the car, Liz and I start going at it. And we're just going at it. And it is like awkward city. My parents are five steps ahead, and they're like just trying to pretend like they don't know what's going on. You know what I mean? But they know what's going on, and they feel very uncomfortable at this point. And it's one of those things where it's like if there was a— if there was, you know, like a place where you could just jump and hide and, and hold your breath for 20 minutes underwater, you would go for that over being in the middle of this argument. You know what I'm saying? And so we're arguing. We go into the theater. My parents, we send them into the movie with our daughter, Mim, and we just say, okay, uh, we're going we're gonna to buy popcorn, okay? So we stand for 10 minutes in the concession area, and the popcorn line is like 10 feet ahead of us, and there's nobody in line, and we're buying popcorn at, at, at a pretty intense rate. They must have thought we were discussing what we wanted. Was it Sour Patch Kids or what? You know, what are you going to get, the snow cap things? Or come on. And there's this very large man behind us. I mean, he's like six foot 13, and he's huge, and he's bigger than me, and you can tell I'm not like a real stout guy, right? And, um, and he's behind us, and he stands there for five minutes while we go at it. I think because he thinks if he goes around us, my wife with her, you know, CrossFit biceps is going to slam him to the ground and karate chop his neck or something. And so he, he's not going around us. He's terrified of us. And so he stands there, and we're here. And then finally, like five minutes in, I'm like, dude, you, you can just go. And he's like, oh, good. And he goes, and he gets his, you know— his popcorn and his slushy and all that stuff, and he goes and sees his movie, and we continued for five more minutes. And it was the tip of the iceberg of where my life was, I felt like, in almost every dimension. And I just thought, man, I don't, number one, know how God could love me right now. I don't know how I could be his child. I don't know how I could be a pastor. I don't know how a lot of things are going on. I just feel like I should be able to be in control of my life. Why can't I do it? Look with me at, verse, at chapter 3. And, and if you had told me that the, the valley of my trouble could be the door of hope, I would have been like, yeah, whatever, dude. You know, that's great, but just, you know, please leave me alone. I don't want to talk to you, and I don't want to hear that right now. And in Hosea chapter 3, look at what happens. And this is, this is how we, we see the door of hope. This is where the door of hope is. This is what the door of hope is. The Lord said to me, go again. This is God talking to Hosea. At this point, Gomer is living with some other guy. She's in someone else's bed. She's in someone else's house. And God says to Hosea, go again. One more time, Hosea, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and they love the cakes of raisins. Go, Hosea, Love her. He doesn't say show duty. You know, do what you're supposed to. You're her husband. You are legally obligated to this lady. Go. It's your obligation. He says, love her again. Hosea has loved Gomer the whole time. He cares for this woman. Even though she turns her back on him, even though she slaps him in the face, he cares for Gomer. He loves Gomer. God says, go again, Hosea, and show love to your wife. Just like God loves Israel. And uh, it says this, so I bought her. He goes, he pursues this woman who seems unlovable to you and to me, and he buys her. He pays for her. He, he, she's his wife, and yet she, he pays a price for her. 
doesn't seem like he should have to buy her, but he buys her back from the life that she was living and calls her and brings her back into his house. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without a king or a prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household god. And afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Where is the door of hope? Can somebody just tell me how to find the door? If I could find the door, I would have walked right through it in that moment on Christmas Day and I would have never looked back, but I couldn't find it. I didn't know what it was. And as long as I had been a follower of Christ, as, as much as I knew about Scripture, the door was elusive to me on that day. And it's because my problem wasn't knowledge. My problem was my heart. And a couple weeks later, I was in Atlanta, Georgia at the Passion Conference at the Georgia Dome with 60,000 college students. The conference could have been, we joked, um, sponsored by Shout because it was just like, hey, everybody, I was like, shut up, okay? Shut up, college kids. You're too happy, and I'm not in a good place. And you should know that. Okay, that's how I felt. I'm just being truthful. And, um, and so we were at Passion, and in a moment when it was quiet, in a moment when people weren't shouting, it got dark. And I was just there, and I didn't really want to sing the songs, and I didn't really want to say the stuff. And I just closed my eyes, and, and the, the, you know, some dude in a really deep V-neck was playing some ethereal thing on the keys, and he had pants that are like, you know, so skinny that his blood stopped flowing to his head. He got real white in the face and he's playing his, you know, and I'm like, God, I don't want to be here because it's a, it's a situation where it's dark and it's quiet and there's, there's 60,000 people around you, but you're very much in a private place. And I said, God, I, I don't want to do this again. I can't do this. I'm a failure. I keep failing and you know it and I know it. And what, what in the world, what's wrong with me? And blah, 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 blah. And I'm like running in my mind. I'm running my mouth to God. And God says, Ryan, just shut up. And I was like, huh? And God didn't speak in an audible voice, but it was like, I'm sitting here and it's quiet. And I close my eyes and I'm crying. And God said, just, just be quiet. And then a song started to be played. And I'd never heard the song before. You, you've probably heard it. And the word said, promise maker, promise keeper, you finish what you begin. Our provision in the desert, you see it through to the end. The Lord our God, he's ever faithful. He never changes through the ages. From this darkness, you will lead us, and forever we will say, you're the Lord our God. And in a moment, I just realized I had been trying to control everything and carry everyone on my back. I had been trying to manipulate everything. I had been trying to be the faithful one. And when I tried to be the faithful one, when I tried to be the perfect one, when I tried to have it all together, when I tried to make change happen in my heart and life, it just wasn't working for me. I wanted everyone to think I was so good and so great and I could do it all and I had it together and I just was like, always like, yeah, it's all good, man. I'm good. Everything's good. We're good. We're going to make it. And that's still my default mode to try to just be the hero of my story. To try to be the one who's got it all together. And so I found the door of hope. When I heard that song and I started to unpack for the next six months, and I probably listened to that song 500 times, 
The Lord our God is ever faithful. He never changes. From this darkness, you will lead us. God is the faithful part of this relationship. I'm not. And it doesn't matter how great I try to convince other people that I am and how much I try to have it all together. My idol, the thing I want to have more than anything else in life is control. It's this sense of spiritual completion. And God's like, you're not the faithful one, Ryan. But I made a promise to Abraham and I made a promise to you and I'm God and I'm always going to be faithful. You ran away from me, Ryan. You sin. You make mistakes. You're a broken, frail person. But guess what? I'm going to put my arm around you and we're going to walk and I'm going to talk to you and I'm going to speak tenderly to you. It's really a popular idea when we read the Old Testament especially. We do these character studies, right? We find the hero and then we say, be like David, be like Hosea, be like Elijah, be like Elisha. But the problem is, in the story, we're not the ones who are supposed to be the hero. There's only one hero in the story, there's only one Hosea in the story, and there's a Gomer. And I wanted to be Hosea, and I was liberated by the fact that I'm not Hosea, I'm Gomer. And you're like, whoa, you're not Gomer. She was really bad. Remember, nobody's named their kid after her. She was a terrible person. She was a whore. Remember, you're not. No, I am not a promiscuous woman. Okay, if you were wondering about that, I'm not a promiscuous woman. But I am the one in my relationship with God who doesn't have it all together, who's not faithful, who's not perfect. And I have a Hosea, and he's perfect, and he's a hero. And he pursues me in love, even when I find myself giving my heart away to things that are a whole lot less than him. See, the freedom of being Gomer is I'm not perfect, but I'm loved in spite of the fact that I'm not perfect. I'm not the one who changes everything, but someone's love changes me. And it says, go, come back and be with me and don't give yourself to someone else or something else. I have a Hosea, but I'm not him. And I'll never be Hosea in my relationship with God. And what I've learned through the whole experience, and I hope you can see today, is that that God doesn't want to dump judgment on me. He wants to dump grace on me. And the door of hope is my Hosea. He's the one that I grab to and cling to and walk through. And I don't make myself good enough for him. I don't come to him and say, okay, I am ready now to be in a relationship with you. He bought my life. He bought my righteousness, all the good thing, all the goodness of, of God dumped into my account through a perfect life and a bloodied body on a cross. And my Hosea has a name, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he rose from the dead, and he lives today, and he's in, the, in heaven interceding for me before the Father. And when I feel like it should be judgment, he says, no, 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 no. Remember who the door is? I'm the door. I'm the door of hope, buddy. You can't do this. You can't control this. You can't manipulate this. I've already done it for you. So just walk through me. And I'm going to put my arms around you, and I'm going to hold you, and I'm going to speak tenderly to you, and I'm going to be your hero. I'm the hero of the story. And it can be your story too. 
It can be your story that magnifies my greater story. Ben's going to come. The band's going to come. We're going to sing some songs to, to respond to this. I don't know who you are. I don't know where you're at. There's tons of stories in this room this morning. Tons of weeks, tons of months, tons of summers, things to come, things you're struggling with. You don't have to be good enough for God. He came and gave his life for you and for me and made us good enough for him through Christ. That's what the cross is about. That's what the gospel is about. Christ died for us once for all. And he bore his, our sins in his body on the tree. While we were yet sinners, that was when Christ died for us. Because very rarely will anyone die for a good person. Or, you know, I'm going to mess that up right now in this moment. But you understand what I'm saying. There's a but, there's a because, there's a yet. And the yet is the door of hope. Jesus Christ. So just to encourage you, I'm going to pray. And then we're just going to respond to him in worship. And I just encourage you to just give him whatever you need to give him right now and, and, and to receive grace. And don't hold on to control anymore in your life if you're doing that like I was. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just, we just sit here in your presence and just want to confess to you as your people that we are so familiar with the gospel but in so many ways, sometimes a million miles from living the gospel out, from receiving it. We know it, we've heard it, but some of us are just so stinking proud and we hold you at arm's length. And we wait to, want to wait to come to you till we've got it all together, till we've got it all perfect, till we've figured it all out. But you figured it out for us. So help us now as we sing to sing with hearts that are joyful because of the hope that we have in Christ and for men and women in this room who have not come to a place in their lives where they've really understood that Jesus is the door of hope they sense in their conscience that they should be judged that they shouldn't be in a relationship with you that they could never do anything to make up for all the things that they've done to a perfect, holy, eternal God. I just pray that they would be able to receive Christ's work on their behalf. And Holy Spirit, apply this to each of our lives in the way that we need you to. And thank you that you're our teacher and we love you. So just continue to lead us now as we sing. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.